Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and a MedPeds ID fellow. This episode marks the one year anniversary of Febrile, which is uh, still sinking in a little bit for me. This will be episode 28, which marks the end of this first season for the year of 2021. I want to express my sincere gratitude to loyal listeners of the podcast who have been here and to new listeners who are just getting introduced to Febrile. I also have to thank every single person who has supported me in creating this resource. Medical students, residents, and fellows who have volunteered their time to help create amazing episodes, and the guest discussants who have come on and shared their knowledge and love of ID. I created this learning resource as a way to hear about interesting ID topics and highlight ID trainees and faculty, and I really hope we'll continue to grow and build this community. We have already had listeners and downloads in 116 countries over this past year, which I think is just so incredible. So here on Fibral, I usually tell you about how we use patient cases to learn about high yield ID topics, but I do hope that Fibral will expand and include other types of formats. We are going to continue to trial some non-case-based episodes as well, but the goal remains the same, to be a resource for learning and teaching about ID. Today is going to be a little bit different because it is just me. I am going to provide you a few updates. We're going to talk about the US ID fellowship match very quickly. And then there's been new guidance on antimicrobial resistant infections that's come out. And I am going to do my best to compare and contrast the newest IDSA and SMID releases. Uh, before that, I have two quick announcements. One, I am tentatively going to take a brief pause in releasing new episodes for the upcoming weeks in January 2022. Uh, I hope that everyone has a wonderful holiday season and we are hard at work on episodes for 2022 or season two. Some of the upcoming topics include a ton of transplant and immunocompromised host content, uh, such as CMV, which I know a ton of people want to hear about, congenital infections, and more. This podcast runs on the love of learning about ID. And I usually mention this at the end of the show, but I'm going to put it up front and center today. I would welcome and appreciate anyone who wants to help or contribute if you have creative ideas for the podcast. I also welcome anyone who wants to try their hand at crafting and creating infographics if you've seen those on Twitter or the website. And I can help even if that's a totally new experience for you. And the second announcement is that I please be on the lookout. I am working on a survey to to get some feedback on Febrile as a learning resource and figure out ways that we can improve. So that's it for housekeeping. Don't worry, as everyone's favorite culture podcast, I won't leave you hanging and I will still share a little piece of culture. Um, I was going to recommend Tick, Tick, Boom, which I watched on Netflix. This is the new film version, or I guess I should say adaptation of Jonathan Larson's Uh, autobiographical or semi-autobiographical musical, which is also entitled Tick, Tick, Boom. Uh, If you don't know, Larson was an American composer and created the musical Rent. Andrew Garfield plays Larson and he is just brilliant. Um, This is also Lin-Manuel Miranda's debut as a director. And I know everyone probably knows Hamilton. And it is the season. So I felt like I should suggest something festive. If you are in the mood for more of a holiday movie, 
uh, that maybe isn't sort of in the usual rotation. I also would recommend Klaus. It's from, I think it's from 2019. It's, it's, relatively recent. Um, but it's an animated film. It's also on Netflix. It's kind of like a different type of Santa Christmas origin story. It, it's really lovely and has beautiful animation. So I hope that y'all can find time to yourself for a break or with your families this holiday season, because I know that it's it's busy in most parts of the country and the world. Okay, so first up is Match. Congrats to all the new and incoming ID fellows. The results of the U.S. ID Fellowship Match is relatively stable, I think I would say. For the Adult ID Fellowship Match, 82% of positions were filled. So 358 of 436 Adult ID Fellow positions. It's down a little bit from last year, but overall, all of this has significantly improved since we went to the all-in match um, which was, I think, in 2017. 70% of programs filled, so 120 of the 172 American Adult ID programs, which again is down slightly from last year, but overall is significantly up since 2016. Um, but if you think those numbers are low, we struggle in pediatric ID as well. For pediatric ID fellowship match, 52% of positions were filled, so 44 of 84 available positions. That number has bounced around. The last two years were 55% and 63%, um, but only 41% of programs were filled, so 41% of pediatric ID fellowship programs, so 24 of 59. So I will put links to the match data and statistics on the website if you want to find them, but you can also just Google it and find it. Uh, there is a report from each individual year, but there's also the general NRMP five-year trend document report. And uh, speaking of match and fellowship fill rate, I just thought I'd mention there was this recent paper in the Journal of Infectious Diseases from a team at the University of Wa Wisconsin and Madison, and they looked at possible factors associated with fellowship fill rate and uh, particularly noted specialized training tracks and active Twitter accounts or social media presence were helpful. And I know we have tons of fellowship programs on Twitter now. I had actually envisioned that hopefully February would be a place to highlight fellowship programs and have this dream that we would go to different programs over time. Uh, I would love more representation on the podcast. And if you want a really awesome example of this, you can uh, it's episode 19, Finding a Needle in the Haystack, where we had friends from University of Minnesota. Uh, but if you've listened to Febrile, we've had various episodes where we featured a team from a specific university. So just let me know if you have, you know, med student, resident fellow, ID faculty, if you guys want to come on the show and talk about your program, I would love to have you. All right. So now we are at the final segment. As many of you might already know, there is new IDSA, Infectious Diseases Society of America, guidance released at the end of November 2021 on the treatment of antimicrobial resistant infections, version two. So version two looked at AMPC beta-lactamase producing Enterobacterialis, carbapenem resistant acinetobacter, and stenotrophomonas infections. The previous version one had focused on extended spectrum beta-lactamase producing ESBL infections, carbapenem resistant enterobacterialis, CRE, and pseudomonas. So I was going to pull a few quick notes from this guidance. And then the European Society of Clinical Micro and Infectious Diseases, or ESCMID, 
released their guidelines for multi-drug resistant gram-negative bacilli this week. So I decided to sit down with both of them and try to combine them and pull out some compare and contrast notes that you can listen to. The links to all of these are going to be available on the consult notes. And I am working on episodes for 2022 for MDR gram-negative infections. This is another very highly requested febrile topic. So I am not an expert (laughs) in this at all. So I hope this is helpful and it is coming from a learner perspective So I hope this is just a good place to get started so that you go read more. I know that many of the authors on these panels are on Twitter, and I am very grateful to have resources like this that summarize topics. Uh, I won't be really digging into background literature or primary studies since this is an overview and it's a lot to cover. I also will note that the ESCMID document is a guideline, whereas the IDSC documents are guidance. I probably am going to say the wrong one totally by accident, but I I just want to to mention that here that technically one's a guideline and one is guidance. So before we start, I will do a brief intro just about the sort of terminology. And then most of this will be structured in the layout of table one from the ESCMID guidelines. I am not going to cover Pseudomonas today, which is an IDSA guidance version one, but the newest ESMID guidelines, uh, just because I couldn't quite get to all of it. I will try to cover items from the rest of the table and highlight new additions that came from the newest IDSA version two guidance. So just as a reminder, since we have a variety of learners who listen to Febrile, AMP-C beta-lactamases are class C serine beta-lactamase enzymes that can be produced by enterobacteriales and glucose non-fermenting gram-negative organisms. We are going to really be talking about and focusing on organisms that have inducible chromosomal resistance. So inducible AMP-C expression, which leads to AMP-C enzyme production, which increases MICs and results in ceftriaxone and ceftazidime resistance. Resistance to penicillins uh, is common, except piperacillin, ampicillin sulbactam, amoxicillin clavulanate, and first and second generation cephalosporins and cephamycins. And if you want to read a little bit more in the IDSA guidance version two, there is a question and answer that sort of outlines how beta-lactams fall in their spectrum for the potential to induce AMP-C. I will probably just say AMP-C sometimes. For extended spectrum beta-lactamases, I'm going to say ESBLs, these are acquired through mobile genetic elements. There are hundreds of variations. And really, any gram-negative can harbor ESBL genes, but the most prevalent organisms that we're talking about are E. coli, Klebsiella pneumoniae, Klebsiella oxytoca, Proteus mirabilis. So most organisms with ESBLs have resistance to penicillins, first to third generation cephalosporins, sometimes fourth generation cephalosporins. And high level expression could cause resistance to ertapenem, but usually these are susceptible to carbapenems. All right. And then carbapenemases also acquired through mobile genetic elements. This is a huge topic. We are not even remotely scratching the surface, but Carbapenemases cause resistance to most, if not all, beta-lactam antimicrobials. The spectrum depends on the type of carbapenemase. 
The most common in the U.S. is KPC, Klebsiella pneumoniae carbapenemase. The others that you've heard of are metallobetalactamases. So this includes a couple alphabet soup items. So NDM, New Delhi metallobetalactamase, IMP, imipenem hydrolyzing metallobetalactamase, VIM, Verona, Integran, encoded beta-lactamase and others. There are also oxacillinases. So you've seen OXA. Um, so for some of these, they remain susceptible to cephalosporins while resistant to carbapenems. So when I say CRE, I'm talking about enterobacteriales or gram negatives resistant to at least one carbapenem or producing a carbapenemase enzyme. Um, and again, this is a very heterogeneous group of pathogens. There's a lot of different potential mechanisms, but just for a framework before we dive into these charts. Okay, so our first section is going to be third generation cephalosporin resistant enterobacteriales, so resistance to ceftriaxone or ceftazidime. So I'm using the ESCMID heading here, but you'll note that in the IDSA guidance, it's broken into ESBL producers, which is version one, and AMP-C producers, which is version two. And so for patients with bloodstream infection and severe infections due to third-generation cephalosporin-resistant enterobacteriales, the ESCMID guidelines recommend a carbapenem, imipenem, or meropenem as targeted therapy. The IDSA guidance does prefer carbapenem for ASBLs outside of the urinary tract. So really for severe ASBL infection, the recommendations are the same between ESMID and IDSA. ESMID does mention for patients with bloodstream infection without septic shock that uh, you could use ertapenem, um, which is not really separately mentioned in the IDSA guidance. But for other organisms, so for AMP-C producers in the IDSA version 2 guidance, they suggest cefepime for organisms with moderate to high risk of significant AMP-C production with a cefepime MIC of 2 or less. I'm going to come back to that. And they recommend a carbapenem if the cefepime MIC is 4 or greater, assuming that there's carbapenem susceptibility demonstrated um, the idea here being that ESBL co-production may be present. So which organisms are moderate to high risk of significant AMPC production? And this is a really awesome takeaway from the version 2 IDSA guidance. They discuss how Enterobacter cloacae, Klebsiella erogenes, and Citrobacter frindii, these three are really the organisms we should consider as clinically relevant AMPs, inducible AMPC expression. And so uh, emergence of AMPC after agents like ceftriaxone with these organisms occurs in up to 40% of infections. Most of us have learned the organisms that we should associate with AMPC as spice or space. Um, and I really like that in this section, they, they kind of outline why these acronyms um, have limitations. So spice and space uh, kind of obscure. They don't really identify the range of AMPC induction potential. And it can be a little confusing because often it was sort of uh, asterisks next to it. So the C for Citrobacter, Citrobacter frindii does harbor AMPC, whereas Citrobacter cozeri does not. 
And then many, I learned it with an eye being Indopause, a proteus species, which does include some proteus species that don't usually contain chromosomal AMPC. And then our other old friends in Spicer Space as the acronym, so Serratia, Morganella, Providentia, that these in general are less likely to overexpress and lead to clinically significant AMPC production. There are also other organisms with inducible chromosomal AMPC that we don't know a ton about, so Hafnia, Yersinia enterocolitica. But in these cases, I think it seems like most experts would recommend just using susceptibility results. So a major difference, and I think nice to just see this written out um, as a resource that we can look up. So moving forward, for patients, we talked about severe infection. For patients with low-risk, non-severe infections, the estimate guidelines recommend piperacillin tazobactam, which I'm probably going to call piptazo a lot, amoxicillin clavulonic acid, or quinolones. For the IDSA guidance, they recommend a carbapenem for ESBL infections outside of the urinary tract. They recommend nitrofurantoin and trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, or I'm probably going to say trimethoprim sulfa, for uncomplicated ESBL cystitis. And they do mention amoxclav as an alternative in the uncomplicated cystitis section. That's probably one of the other main differences that I saw is that SMID suggests that piptazo is okay, whereas IDSA recommends that piptazo should be avoided for those with these organisms that are moderate to high risk of inducible AMC, even if susceptibility is demonstrated. For complicated UTI and patients without septic shock, the SMID guidelines conditionally recommend aminoglycosides when active in vitro for a short duration or IV phosphomycin. Uh, they also mentioned that it may be good practice to consider cotrimoxazole for non-severe complicated UTI. The IDSA guidance suggests that their preferred treatment options for ESBL, pylo, and complicated UTI include carbapenems, quinolones, trimethoprim sulfa. Um, and then they mention amoxiclav, single-dose aminoglycosides, and oral phosphomycin as alternative options. So pretty similar. I will point out that I, as far as I know, we do not have IV phosphomycin available in the U.S. And just a few more things before we wrap up this section there is a note about step-down targeted therapy for these infections following carbapenems once the patient is stabilized. And really both the IDSA and SMID guidelines sort of make suggestions that it's reasonable. So the language was using old beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors, quinolones, cotrimoxazole, and other antibiotics based on susceptibility pattern is good clinical practice. That's from SMID. And in the IDSA guidance, they, they mentioned that oral step-down therapy is a reasonable consideration, and they specifically mentioned fluoroquinolones and trimethoprim sulfa as options. The estimate guidelines make a point of saying they do not recommend tigacycline, and the IDSA guidelines also, I mean, they don't mention it specifically, but they don't recommend it for any ESBL or AMC infections. And then both the IDSA and ESMID guidance really suggest reserving newer beta-lactams like cefiterocol and beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors. So ceftazidime, abibactam, imipenem, silostatin, relibactam, or mirovabibactam as sort of reserving for organisms that exhibit carbapenem resistance. 
All right. So that is third generation cephalosporin resistant enterobacterialis. So generally very similar. I think the nice things to pull out were the comments from the IDSA version two on the three organisms that they consider at moderate to high risk for clinically significant AMPC production, which is Enterobacter cloacae, Klebsiella, Orogenes, and Citrobacter frindii. Um, and then the point that ESMA does suggest peptazo for low-risk non-severe infections, while IDSA does not. But otherwise, they're generally pretty similar, which I don't think is surprising because they're basically using the same data. Okay, so the next section is going to be carbapenem-resistant enterobacterialis. Um, so severe, I'm going to say CRE for these, severe CRE infections, Estimates suggest meropenem vaberbactam or ceftazidime avibactam if active in vitro. And the IDSA guidance basically agrees for severe infections outside the urinary tract that's resistant to ertapenem and meropenem, where carbapenemase testing is not available or negative. They also suggest ceftaz avi, mirovabor, the only difference is that they do mention imirel, um, which ESMA doesn't really make recommendations on. And then if you have an organism that's outside the, or- the urinary tract that's resistant to ERTA but susceptible to MIRO uh, and you do not have carbapenemase testing, that IDSA recommends extended infusion meropenem. The next part would be severe CRE infections due to metallobetalactamases or those that are severe CRE infections that are resistant to other antibiotics, including ceftazavi and mirovabor. Esmid recommends cefidericol. And for IDSA, they recommend ceftazavi and astreonam combination therapy or cefidericol monotherapy. So Esmid does note the ceftazavi with estreonam combination in a section below this. Um, so it is suggesting both cefidricol and ceftaz avi estreonam combo as options. Um, but I, uh, they don't quite list it on sort of the same line the way it does in IDSA, but I'm not sure that their recommendations are really that different. Um, for non-severe CRE infection, in general, the ESMID guidelines suggest use of an old antibiotic chosen among those that are in vitro, have in vitro activity and according to the source of the infection. And then they suggest aminoglycosides, including plazomycin, over tigacycline for complicated UTI. The IDSA guidance breaks this down a little bit. They suggest CRE, uncomplicated cystitis, that you prefer fluoroquinolone, trimethoprim sulfa, nitrofurantoin, or a single dose of aminoglycoside. If the cystitis is resistant to ertapenem but susceptible to mira when we do not have testing available, that you can use standard infusion mirapenem. And if you do not have activity, uh, that you can consider ceftaz avi, mirovabor, imirel, and cefidricol as alternatives for CRE cystitis, but colistin is really the last result, resort. And then pilo or complicated UTI, again, ceftaz avibactam, mirovabor, imirel, and cefidricol. So in general, these are pretty similar. 
Uh, the language, though, for SMID sort of suggests aminoglycosides for complicated UTI, whereas the IDSA focuses on the newer anti-CRE agents. Moving forward, the SMID guidelines suggest that tegacycline not be used for bloodstream infection or hospital or ventilator-associated pneumonia, but they do say if necessary, patients with pneumonia could be treated with high-dose tegacycline. Tegacycline monotherapy is mentioned for possible intra-abdominal infections in the IDSA guidelines, but they otherwise generally suggest to avoid. So as I mentioned not too long ago, the SMID guidelines table one later comments and separates out combination therapy for CRE separately. Again, both SMID and IDSA do not recommend combination therapy routinely if the infection is susceptible to other preferred beta-lactam agents. But in those with severe infection caused by CRE carrying a metallo-beta-lactamase or is resistant to newer monotherapy, ceftaz-avibactam with estreonam is recommended as a combination. There's a little bit, a few other notes in the ESCMID table, um, but the recommendations overall are pretty similar. There's not a ton of other specific recommendations on additional combinations and that they suggest clinicians avoid carbapenem-based carbon combination therapy unless the mirapenem MIC is eight or less, where you can use high-dose extended infusion mirapenem. Um, and then they also comment if it's a non-severe infection or a low-risk infection that you really think about monotherapy based on sort of an individual basis. So again, for CRE, the recommendations are pretty similar, uh, with the exception that IDSA specifically mentions a little bit more about use of IMIREL. And um, there's a little bit more of a focus from the IDSA ones on the newer anti-CRE agents for complicated UTI, whereas ESMID suggests aminoglycosides. So I'm not going to cover carbapenem-resistant pseudomonas in this podcast. The ESMID guidelines, this is the next section, and then the corresponding IDSA component would be in the version one of the AMR guidance. So we're going to end with carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter as well as stenotrophomonas. For carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter balmani, the ESMID guidelines suggest ampicillin sulbactam for patients who are susceptible and have hospital or ventilator-associated pneumonia. The IDSA guidance says that a single agent may be sufficient for mild infections, and they also prefer ampicillin they then suggest that moderate or severe infection should be treated with combination therapy. For patients with acinetobacter that is resistant to ampicillin, the ESMID guidelines say that a polymyxin or high-dose tigacycline can be used, but they don't really recommend a preferred antibiotic. And then the IDSA guidance uh, similarly says that polymyxin B can be considered as monotherapy or in combination um, and that colistin is suggested over polymyxin B if it's a urinary infection. Both the ESMID and IDSA guidelines conditionally recommend against cefitercol for the treatment of infections caused by acinetobacter. The IDSA suggests that cefitercol is limited to treatment of infections that are refractory to other options or where you have intolerance to other agents. So really just saving this for 
specific cases. And in the IDSA guidance, they do note that when cefitricol is used for these types of infections that they suggest prescribing the agent as part of a combo regimen. For the ESMID guidelines, they next say for all patients with for all patients that they do not recommend polymyxin mirapenem combination therapy or polymyxin rifampin combination therapy. And IDSA similarly does uh, does have a note that they agree that the combination of polymyxin and mirapenem should not be used, that the panel does not favor rifamycins as a component of acinetobacter therapy. Uh, and then they just suggest that high-dose ampicillin and sulbactam should be a consideration. For combination therapy in patients with high risk and severe infections, ESCMID recommends combination therapy, including two in vitro active antibiotics among the available options, polymyxin, aminoglycoside, tigacycline, and sulbactam combinations. And IDSA guidance really says the same thing, that they would use two active agents when possible for moderate to severe infections. Uh, they do comment a little bit in the notes about the preferences that they would have. And of the agents, the panel preferred minocycline and put high-dose tigacycline as an alternative. And then they said they do not suggest a ravacycline until we have a little bit more data. The next and uh, second to last that I have here is for patients with amiripenem MIC less than eight, ESMIDs suggest considering a carbapenem combination therapy using high-dose extended infusion carbapenem dosing. Um, and similarly, IDSA does mention that high-dose extended infusion miripenem should be considered for combination therapy for moderate to severe acinetobacter infections. And the last thing is the IDSA panel uh, makes a note against suggesting for nebulized antibiotics, which I think is quite helpful. And they do not suggest its use as an adjunct due to its lack of benefit in clinical trials, concerns regarding unequal distribution in infected lungs, and potential for respiratory complications such as bronchoconstriction. Uh, and I think it's really nice that this is in the guidance because I do feel like this question comes up uh, clinically when you have patients in the ICU. Okay, and our last section is stenotrophomonas, which this is specifically from the IDSA guidance version two. These are not specifically in the ESMID guidelines. So for mild infections with stenotrophomonas, IDSA guidance suggests trimethoprim sulfa, minocycline, tigacycline, levofloxacin, or cefiterocol monotherapy, again, for mild infections. Trim sulfa and high-dose minocycline are preferred agents of that list. They comment that they suggest minnow preferred over tigacycline because it has more favorable in vitro data. There are available CLSI breakpoints. And as many of us know, minnow is oral and it is better tolerated. Uh, they do make a note about the concern for emergence of resistance during levofloxacin monotherapy. So suggest to only consider levofloxacin for mild infection or as part of combination therapy for moderate or to severe infection with another active agent. For those with moderate to severe infections, they listed out three different approaches. So the first is using combination therapy with trimsulfa, and minocycline as the preferred combination. 
the second option, starting trim sulfa monotherapy with the plan to add a second agent, preferably minocycline, if there is a delay in clinical improvement on monotherapy. And then third, the combination of ceftazidime, abibactam, and astreonam when you have intolerance or inactivity of other agents. So basically, if you can't use trimethoprimsulfa or minocycline, that that's the combination therapy they would recommend. The last thing I'll mention is that they do not suggest the use of ceftazidime for the treatment of steno, regardless of the severity of infection, because there are uh, intrinsic beta-lactamases produced by stenotrophomonas that would likely render ceftazidime ineffective. So that's a ton of information, but I think I think we've covered almost everything with the exception of the pseudomonas section in the ASMID guidelines and the IDSA guidance version one. Overall, as we've talked about, things are pretty consistent between the two, which again, I think makes sense because we're all really working off of the same information. I hope this was helpful and certainly we are hoping to do a lot more and think about MDR gram negatives in this upcoming season uh, and hopefully create some resources and tables so that people can reference them when thinking about these newer antibiotics and which infections that they are best used for. So I'm signing off for season one. Again, thank you to everyone for listening and supporting Febrile. I can't wait to get new episodes out to you in 2022. Happy holidays, stay safe, and I'll see you next year.